welcome back to another episode of Issue by Issue, a DC Comics completionist podcast. The only podcast that I know of that is going through the entirety of DC Comics history. As far as I can make it, I'm only a man. I'm only a mortal man. Uh, one issue at a time, starting from Action Comics number one. I'm your host, as always, Nick Byers. And today we kind of have a special a special thing happening. You know, we've been dealing with our handful of four, five, six comics uh, with the introduction of Batman number one last uh, couple episodes ago and All-American Comics last episode. So we're slowly increasing the sort of um, comic titles in our... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? In our collections, in our um, herd, in our stable, our stable of comics... Uh, and today is no different. We are going to be introducing All-Star Comics number one uh, and more fun comics number 57, but that's not new. Uh, All-Star Comics number one is the comic series that in a couple issues, starting with number three, we have the sort of crossing over of these heroes, these characters, into a shared universe uh, where they acknowledge that they all exist in the world at the same time. Uh, in the same places. It, it, it's what leads to the um, Justice Society of America and super teams as we know it in all of comic book superheroes. Even even Marvel has to take some, uh, some uh, inspiration from All-Star Comics and, and the Justice Society uh, for things like the Avengers and stuff like that. But this first issue and the second one also is not so much a they share a, the same universe. It's more like this is the first time that a lot of them are in the same book together because in this All-Star Comics number one, we have Hawkman, Sandman, Flash, Spectre, and Our Man, all in separate stories, but in the same book for the first time. Um, but before we get into that, let's set the scene as we always do, do with the real-world history that was going on when these issues were being put on shelves. May 24th, uh, assailants working for the Soviet Union attacked Leon Trotsky, a formerly high-ranking member of the Soviet Union, uh, at his compound in Koyo... Ko it's, a, it's a Mexican name. Coyoacan, Mexico. Several bombs were detonated and hundreds of machine gun rounds were fired at the bedroom, causing such extensive damage that the attackers left, assuming that Trotsky was dead. However, he and his wife... Uh, and his wife, Natalie, Natalia, had taken cover on the floor beside his bed and escaped serious injury. That's why, if you're sent on an assassination mission, always check and make sure that the person's dead, because they could have been hiding. Uh, also on May 24th, the film adaptation of the Thornton Wilder play Our Town debuted, uh, starring William Holden, Martha Scott in the same role she portrayed portrayed in the play, and Faye Bainter. It would eventually be nominated for three Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Score, not winning any of them, but being nominated for them. So that's that's pretty cool. And I love old movies, so right up my alley. May 26th, the Battle of Dunkirk began in France. Uh, the British against the uh, Nazis, British and French, I suppose, uh, against the Nazi Germans. Um, so that's that's a, I mean, a new, a movie somewhat recently, 2017. Wait, has it really been that long since Dunkirk came out? Uh, uh, Christopher Nolan's movie, Dunkirk. Man, 
Time flies. Was it 2017? Hmm. May 27th. The Dunkirk evacuation began, so clearly the battle didn't go great. Uh, Codenamed Operation Dynamo, and uh, this evacuation would last until June 4th. Uh, So it would take a long time to get all these soldiers out. And finally, May 28th, King Leopold III of Belgium ordered the Belgian army to cease fighting. Belgium had surrendered to Nazi Germany Germany at 4 a.m. that morning, so the sort of dominoes of Europe are beginning to fall. Uh, although Belgium's not a huge country, doesn't have a huge military, isn't a very big military power. Still, when an ally surrenders, you you, know, you miss them. You miss their, their, their logistics and their men and all that kind of stuff. So, so not great. But that'll do it for the real world history. And so let's get into the actual issues, starting with All-Star Comics number one, released May 24th, 1940, with a cover date of summer 1940. That's right. It's a quarterly. I don't know if it's going to switch to a non-quarterly and into a monthly uh, situation before we get to number three, or if we will have to wait until the winter issue to get uh, All-Star Comics number three with the introduction of the shared universe. Uh, We'll find out, won't we, as time goes by. Uh, No debuts in this issue, just uh, the old mainstays that we know all about. And so starting with the first story, it's going to be the Hawkman story. It was written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Sheldon Moldoff, as per usual. Uh, and let's talk about the cover of All-Star Comics before we get into it. It It is a yellow background with All-Star Comics. Very nice, very, very colorful, flowing title. Uh, it's 10 cents, so that was probably a little bit more expensive, although I think it's a longer book than than standard, but maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. Um, but it has what looks like panels from these these. Uh, stories ripped out and they have the sort of frayed edges of a piece of paper that's been ripped and we have we have Sandman we have The Flash uh, we have uh, Gary Concord the Ultraman who's not uh, technically part of the DC universe uh, and we have the Spectre and I don't think that any of these panels are from specific uh, stories because it just each one basically pertains to a bad guy saying the name of the hero that is sort of dealing with them. Uh, and then at the bottom we said, it says, also featuring Red, White, and Blue, The Hour Man, Biff Bronson, and The Hawkman. Which is interesting that Hawkman gets last billing. Um, although in movies and television, the and typically goes to a more uh, well-established actor or actress. I guess actor is a gender-neutral term, isn't it? Uh, to a well, uh, a more established actor, like getting getting your name after the and or with after a with, uh, is actually um, kind of better billing. If you're not the first person, it's probably better to be with the on the and or the with. Uh, at least that's what I have heard. Uh, but Hawkman gets the first story in this issue, although he gets final billing. Uh, and I will tell you, this story is not very good. But that's kind of because it only gets eight pages, which uh, all, all of these stories are truncated from the normal lengths, or typically normal lengths, of their stories in their actual books. Uh, so Hawkman only gets eight, The Flash only gets eight, uh, Sandman only gets eight, and uh, Spectre gets ten, and Our Man only gets six. So, uh, 
uh, Joe Schuster or Jerry Siegel said, uh, no, I need those. I need those two pages that Our Man was going to get, and I need 10 for my Spectre story. So these are all going to be shorter stories. And from my, I mean, I've read a lot of Golden Age comics at this point. Um, from what I've read, when a, when a story gets less than 10 pages, it is a mess. Uh, because you can only use panels for certain things. You only have so many panels with so few pages. And so a lot of the action takes place off screen. Things that would take more than one panel to illustrate uh, or to show get uh, sort of hand waved away uh, into, you know, off screen. So the story is not very good. Uh, and uh, that's kind of unfortunate. But uh, let's get into it. Uh, Hawkman is flying over the Welsh mountains, uh, just, you know, doing his thing, uh, you know, using his ancient weapons to fight the evils of the present, you know, that standard shtick, when a young girl is racing across the the Welsh moors, although I thought we were in the mountains, I guess, I guess we're on the edge of the mountains where the moors are still around, Uh, so she's calling for help. And Hawkman swoops down and grabs her by both her arms from where she's at, which, like, depending on the speed he's going, you're just going to rip her arms right out of her sockets, and that's going to be painful for her, and you're going to have to put the sockets back in, and that's going to be painful. But uh, her sockets, her shoulder sockets are fine, but she's she's distressed because uh, zombies are after her. Her uncle Trig uh, sent... Uh, he, he discovered a Haitian secret of how to make zombies work for him. I'm assuming also to create zombies. Uh, in the mines that were left to her by her father. And when he said, when she said, no, I don't want zombies working in my mines. He sent the zombies to kill her. Uh, now that Haitian zombie thing is a really, really old sort of stereotype about um, about Haitians and Haitian culture. There's actually a really interesting book about its portrayal in media. It's called The Black Guy Dies First by uh, Robert R. Means Coleman and Mark H. Harris. Uh, it's it's about black horror cinema. Uh, and there's a section in there all about these sort of tropes about uh, Haitian witch doctors and zombies and all this kind of stuff. And so it's interesting to see that these stereotypes were around even in 1940, uh, which I guess, you know, racism. So Hawkman says that he's going to pay her uncle a visit. And she said, you can't harm him. He has my brother imprisoned in the castle. He'll kill him if you interfere. Now, that kind of contradicts itself. You can't harm him. Well, if I harmed him, then he wouldn't be hurting your brother anymore. And I could get your brother. So I guess I guess she must want her uncle. She must actually like her uncle. She likes that her uncle has taken her brother. Wow. Wow, Margot. Not very cool. Uh, so Hawkman flies off uh, to this castle in 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 the Welsh countryside, in the Welsh mountains. Uh, now, this is a very, very grand castle we see from a picture here. Uh, I don't know a lot about Welsh history, but I don't remember them being like a very super wealthy country. Uh, I mean, they were I mean, they were their own country before the sort of uh, lumping them in with Great Britain and Scotland into, you know, uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, but I don't remember them being super rich enough to have a big castle like this. Are you saying this is fake? Are you saying the writer lied about a Welsh castle? That's crazy. Uh, so Hawkman somehow gets into this castle. It's not shown because, like I said, only so many panels. 
and he is kind of making his way room by room. He sees a room uh, with bodies in it, presumably to be made into zombies later. And when he hears a scream coming from down the hall, and he rushes, he rushes down the hall, down some stairs, uh, through a through a door, where he sees uh, an old man who is assuming is Uncle Trig. He's never introduced formally, uh, but it's just an assumption that it's Uncle Trig, and he has, who we also presume. Uh, their identity. Uh, we learn that it's true later, but it, this is presumably Margot, the the girl's brother. Uh, and so they have him on what's known as the rack, uh, which is a device that pulls your arms and your legs in, in you know opposite directions to sort of stretch you out in a sort of torture. Uh, he uh, faints from the pain and uh, is taken out of the rack by zombie assistants. Uh, who Hawkman then attacks. And now, remember earlier, or and also remember Hawkman's whole thing is like, I use ancient weapons to fight present-day evil. Doesn't it seem like he all, oftentimes just doesn't have a weapon with him and he just happens to find a weapon on a wall or something? Well, this is also the case. He grabs a sword from what's called a weapon-lined wall. Why is there a weapon-lined wall? I guess he is in a torture room, but... What is a sword? You're just going to slice them? That's, that, I guess that's torture. It just feels weird. He just always happens to find old weapons, which I, th- I think in 1940, he's more likely to find a gun, which is not an old weapon. So he, he's slicing these zombies, and they don't seem to be, you know, affected because they're zombies, and we all know the shtick of zombies. Uh, so he kind of gets the zombies off of him enough to grab uh, uh, this girl's brother, and fly him out of the castle, and he tells the old man, he says, I'll be back for you later. Uh, after Hawkman leaves, an old hag uh, enters the room, whose name is Beldum, Beldame Gaffey, B-E-L-D-A-M-E, Gaffey, uh, and she is apparently a witch, which is like, dang, dang bro, you, you, you can make zombies, but you need a witch also. We need two We need two villains in this. In this eight pages, we need two. All right. Uh, Beldame Gaffey is going to make a, a potion or a, a spell. She's going to do a spell uh, that is going to wither the bodies of Margot and Jan or Jan, uh, who is presumably this girl's brother. Uh, and then I shall make a special magic to kill them. Now, this brings me to the point where I ask... Why did Uncle Trig have to kidnap her brother in order to kill them and get their inheritance? Because that's his whole plan. His whole plan is to kill them and get their inheritance. Why not just use this magic of of Gaffy's to kill them? That way, also, you're not tied to it, which you now are from the kidnapping. You know, the kidnapping, because I think there's still laws. You know, it's 1940, which 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 brings me to another point of this story. Everyone in this story, except for maybe Margot, is dressed like it is the Middle Ages. I'm uh, this old this old hag is wearing just like a big cloak uh, with a hood. And uh, Uncle Trig is like wearing what I can only describe as sort of uh, a man's skirt uh, with no shirt and a cloak over his shoulders. Like, what year is it? It's 1940. I don't even care if you're in the Welsh mountains. Like, 
like Sears Roebuck exists. You can catalog, you can mail catalog uh, some clothes and get some nice slacks, maybe a button-down shirt, look like a proper mind businessman. Uh, but uh, so a lot of a lot of weird stuff in this story so far already, and we're not even like part way through. Like we're only. We're only like three pages in. It's crazy. So uh, the Hawkman returns uh, Jan or Jan to uh, his sister Margot, and then um, Margot and Jan uh, kiss on the mouth, and it looks like a tender one. Like he has his arm wrapped around her, you know, back her back and shoulders, and she has her arm around his neck, and it's. It's an intimate-looking kiss, and it's like, well, you guys are brother and sister. This is kind of painting the Welsh in not a very great light. I'll post it for on the Instagram. It's just, it's really weird. It took me off. It caught me off guard, you know. Um, and not in the kind of way with like, like in Star Wars where uh, Luke and Leia they kiss, and then later we learn they're they're siblings. Not nah, we we know that these two are siblings from the jump. So it's weird. Um, so suddenly then the magic from Gaffy starts to take hold of Margot and Jan or Jan, and they start to feel really weak and sleepy. And so Hawkman is going to go back to the castle to investigate. So he does that and he goes back into the witch's room. Uh, uh, he must eventually find it. It's a huge castle, but he's able to find every room easily. And he leaps at Trig and Gaffy to get them, but then he hits an invisible wall. Uh, and uh, Trig points at this red circle on the ground and, and says, ha-ha, magic, ha-ha, the magic red circle, you cannot cross it. And then Hawkman says, well, yeah, I can't cross it, but I can fly over it. That's what crossing it means. And in, in, my, in my head, if you do a magic circle, that's straight up forever, you know? It's... Even in space, suddenly a spaceship out in the middle of space is going to have a huge gash into it because the rotation of the Earth rotated in a way that the force field of your circle cut through that spaceship. It's not going to be just like, it's three feet tall. Well, that's stupid if I can just fly right over it. What a useless circle. And they don't seem to care. They're just like, quick, through the secret door. And they go through the secret door and... and uh, Hawkman back in the room jumps over the or flies over the circle and then kicks over the brewing pot. Um, and and in the secret room, the Gaffy must have a crystal ball because she looks into it and says, "Ah, Margot and Yan, or Jan, or Jan, they're on Cardiff Mountain. We must uh, capture them." So back in the room, the zombies have come in. Uh, and like, remember when this was a story about zombies? Yeah, me too. Um, zombies are back and they're attacking Hawkman and he, you know, flings them off because he knows he can't do anything and he flies off, uh, to back to where he left those two kids or teens. I guess they're probably teens. Well, no, they'd have to be adults, young adults. But for some dumb reason, Margot and Yan are like, we can't, we're not safe on this mountain. Let's go down to the ground or the, off this mountain. And, uh, Meanwhile, Trig and Gaffy see these two coming down from the mountain. So they're like, "Ha ha! I'll, I'll bring, I'll summon some zombies." Uh, so they have to pass on this road that we're standing on, 
And then when they're here, when they come here, they'll find their dear uncle will be waiting for them. So, uh, meanwhile, uh, Hawkman flies back to the spot where he left these two young adults. And he's like, where'd they go? Silly kids. And then he takes uh, a little time for himself and whittles himself a quarterstaff. Yeah, you heard that right. He whittles a quarterstaff. Again, it's just another situation of Hawkman didn't actually bring any weapons with him, even though that's his whole thing, is to have weapons with him all the time. But also, the the panel implies, or actually time in this story and the panel, imply that things are moving somewhat quickly. And I don't know if anyone here has whittled before. I haven't. But it's certainly not something that you can just do. And, like, he, I guess we can pretend that he just found a really, really straight branch and he's carrying that with him. It's specifically made of Welsh hickory wood, uh, which also I haven't seen a single tree on this mountain. So where did this where did this frickin' quarterstaff come from? But he whittles this quarterstaff. I guess he must have a knife with him at least, at minimum. But he says, I'll need this for the rest of the fight. It's like, okay, good, use your quarterstaff. Don't use that knife that you brought with you, apparently. Uh, we then cut back to Margot and Yan. They've been captured off screen by Daffy and Trig. And did I say Daffy? I meant Gaffy. Uh, not Daffy Duck. He's not here. Although when DC is bought by Warner Brothers, they will technically be owned by the same people. But uh, no, Daffy Duck is not here. Gaffy the witch is, though. And she's going to uh, sprinkle some red powder around the prisoners and then uh, light it on fire, and it'll deal with their problem, which makes me just think it's like gunpowder. It's like this magic red powder. Um, Gaffy, that's just gunpowder that you've put in a cup. No, it's magic red powder. So, um, so yeah, they're going to uh, immolate the two, the two young adults uh, so that Trig can get his inheritance. I don't know what Gaffy is getting out of this, but um, she's, she's helping him out. But before they can do that, Hawkman swoops down and using his quarterstaff that he whittled all by himself uh, in, in re record times, knocks the uh, torch out of Gaffy's hand before it can get to the magic red powder, a.k.a. gunpowder. And uh, Hawkman also, I guess, busts Trig over the head with his quarterstaff. Uh, Trig tries to say, I have gold, I'll pay you well. Uh, and then there's some zombies there, and Hawkman kicks them. One panel of him kicking a zombie. And the zombies don't even look like zombies. They just look like people. There's no, there's nothing, you know, indicating that it is a zombie. It just looks like a regular guy. Uh, Hawkman then frees Margot and Jan, or Yan, or Jan. And uh, they run down the mountain, because the magic is worn off, the weak magic. So now they can, you know, walk faster. And then Hawkman grabs the torch and sets the magic red powder ablaze, uh, burning uh, Beldum Gaffy and Master Trig, which is what his name is, uh, alive. Uh, so that's two. That's two murders on Hawkman. He he loves to do that. He's he's a regular Batman that way. Uh, and he comes back to the to the young adults and says, uh, "Trig is dead. The zombies will also die." And the castle and its wealth is now yours. It was always hers. So uh, Trig was just uh, being a squatter and using squatter's rights. Uh, and the final panel is once more peace will reign at Trig Castle. 
and the Hawkman is off in search of new adventures. And it says, don't miss the absorbing tales of the Hawkman who fights the evils of the present with the weapons of the past, complete in every issue of Flash Comics. So it kind of seems like, and it, it doesn't kind of seem like, it feels like it is, it is. All-Star Comics is a way of just advertising kind of the the heroes from their other books to ensure that their other books sell well and also because people really liked these characters so more stories of them is not a bad thing unless it's a badly written story like that one uh because i just like i don't know why trig was even there his zombies just seemed like dudes why have zombies in there at all just have that weird witch who took over that castle or something like there's so many ways to make that story more tight even just make Trig have magic, you know, powers. Have him doing the brewing. Why is Gaffy there? There's so much wasted page. It's I'm I mean not to not to throw shade at Garden Gardener F Fox and Sheldon Maldoff, but come on, there's, let's let's get you know, let's cut away the cruff, you know. So uh, let's move on. Enough of my uh, griping with uh, Hawkman. Let's move on to Sandman which was uh, written by Gardner F. Fox, penciled by Craig Flessel, and inked by Chad Grothkopf. Sorry. Sorry, Chad, if you're still alive. I butchered your last name. But enough about last names and butchering them. Uh, let's get to the Sandman story. It starts off with Wesley Dodds in uh, Kennedy's, a fashionable jewelry store. He's wanting to purchase a watch, and he wants something serviceable. When suddenly, a man in a brown suit comes to the doorway and says, this is a stick-up. He's got a gun. And uh, he says that the gun has a silencer or a suppressor, as they're technically known, on the end. But it just looks like a regular gun. Um, but he asks for a few of those sparklers, which, like, why can't you just say diamonds? I know it's the 1940s, and everyone has to talk like, yeah, see? Give me some of them sparklers. It's like, just, just talk like a normal person, please. So he is given some of them sparklers, uh, or diamonds, and he says, if you yell before 10 minutes, I'll blast you. Uh, you'll notice my gun has a silencer. So there's a really weird flaw in that logic. Is he going to wait here for 10 minutes? Or is he going to leave? If he leaves, how is he going to shoot them if they make any noise? Is he going to, if he hears them, like if he leaves and walks down the, the street uh, a few steps and he hears them yelling, he's going to run back and be like, hey! I told you, and bam, just start blasting. Um, so that's a dumb thing to say. Uh, and so he runs off, and Wesley Dodds, being Wesley Dodds, he runs after him. He says he can't get away with this. Uh, and he sees the thief duck into a building, and so uh, Wesley Dodds runs towards that building when suddenly a man who looks just like the thief runs past him, but he's wearing a light-colored yellow suit. Uh, the thief was wearing, of course, a brown suit, I said. Uh, so Wesley is conflicted about where to go. Should he continue to follow where he saw the thief went, or should he follow this guy who looks exactly like him? Um, I would follow the guy who looks exactly like him, because that's suspicious. And that's what Wesley Dodds does, too. They both hop in separate cars and head off to, uh, I mean, head off on the chase. Uh, so Wesley follows this guy to 266 Nolan Drive. Uh, and he says, okay, now I know the address. So he goes back to his house and changes into his Sandman costume and then drives the Sandman mobile back to 266 Nolan Drive. 
he busts in the back door. He breaks in, breaks and entering a little B and E, uh, and is looking around and finds the guy sleeping in a, in a bed in one of the rooms. I uh, but a, that's the only person he finds on the premises. Sandman also finds a safe and is cracking into it and uh, opens it up and finds a bunch of precious stones, a fortune of precious stones. And he's so intent on what's inside the safe that he doesn't notice that the door of the room opens. And uh, before he can sort of get out of the way, he is shot in the shoulder and sort of falls down uh, because he's been shot, you know. It's normal stuff. Um, the guy in the yellow suit checks in his pockets and finds sand because uh, obviously the Sandman has to keep his sand somewhere and he keeps it in his pockets. Pocket sand. That guy on King of the Hill, whose name I don't know, would be very proud of him. Uh, and so this crook gets the idea like, oh, I'll dress up like Sandman. That way, if you know I'm caught or whatever, or if anyone sees me doing crime, it, they'll think it's a Sandman. And he's about to do that. He's about to take the mask off uh, when the Sandman wakes up and gasses him. And uh, and then, okay, and then this is weird. This is another weird part of this story. These stories are all very, very weird so far. Uh, so Sandman says, that was a mighty close call. Ooh, that shoulder burns like fire because he's got a bullet wound in it. That makes sense. He's like, I've got to have rest. I'll sneak into a side room. Sorry. What? You've knocked this guy out with your gas gun. Sure. So he's knocked out for a while. But instead of leaving the premises and going somewhere safe, maybe somewhere to get your shoulder stitched up, you're like, I'm going gonna, gonna to go into one of his side rooms and take a nap or like sit down. Okay. Why? It's so weird. But a little while later, the guy in the yellow suit wakes up and he says... Uh, oh, well, what was I doing? Oh, yeah, the Sandman. But the Sandman's not there anymore. And then the doorbell rings. And he says, ah, that'll be Don. And uh, they he gets the door, and in comes the guy in the brown suit who looks just like him. Weird. His name's Don. And the guy in the yellow suit, his name is Jed. And then, then they both run upstairs, but uh, through a, a wide-open door. Not even a door, like... You know, in, in in some houses, some people's houses, they have a big sort of archway uh, or like it, it's a wall, but most of the wall is not there because it's like a big entryway to an, another room. So like there's a threshold between each room, so there's no doors or anything. There's just a big open space. It's one of those. And in the next room is Sam and he's just sitting on the couch and he sees the two dudes run upstairs, but these two dudes don't look over and see him sitting on the couch. So good good job whatever uh and they come back down and they're okay so a few minutes later they come down they reappear dressed in light and dark suits so brown and yellow in this color the coloring that's done on this this story but i don't know if they're wearing different colors or if they put on new suits or why they did that at all it's another a very weird thing about this story and so after they leave the uh well, so Sandman, before he leaves, before they leave, comments, so that's how they work it. One does the dirty work, then slips the loot to the other who is dressed differently. Yeah, Sandman, we got that. That, that was pretty clear. Um, so 
he's they leave and say and Sandman says now to get to my car and trail them so he does that and he trails them to the business district and sees them go into the steamship offices after the weekly payroll so it's it's nighttime the payroll's been you know wait after the weekly payroll so wait payroll's been doled out or has payroll been collected to be doled out like tomorrow I'm going to go with that one because the other way doesn't make any sense. There would be no money in there if it was after all the men were paid. Okay. Uh, So Sandman calls the police and says, hey, you want to find those crooks or that crook who is catching or is who is stealing from jewelry stores? Uh, You should come to the steamship lines offices. So um, another sort of weird thing about this one it this kind of implies that it's just a regular storefront the the drawings of this comic imply it's a regular storefront you go up like three three steps and then you're in the steam ship line travel services or whatever but in a little bit we'll see some weird discrepancies so Sandman follows them in uh so because he's going to gas them and leave them for the police uh, because he's a nice guy like that uh and he races in boldly uh, but one of them whips out a gun and uh, shoots th- his gas gun out of his hand. So Sandman just took the time to discover that their way of doing crime is one does the dirty work and then slips it to the innocent one. But then they're both just in this office rifling through the money? I, I, I just... If you're going to have a shtick for crime, like, stick with it. But, okay... Um, it's not like this story has been really coherent anyway, so not a big deal. So, uh, Sandman says that he'd rather do it with his fists anyways. Um, and so he he punches, even though it hurts his shoulder to do that. Uh, and uh, Sandman trips and is kind of sort of knocked down uh, by, the, by a gun butt. Uh, he gets pistol whipped by one of the dudes. And uh, they attempt to uh, flee to escape. Uh, and Sandman attempts to jump after them, but there's two of them, so the other one hits him, uh, knocking him down to the ground, and uh, seemingly out. And uh, in the distance, we can hear police sirens. And so the, the crooks are like, we gotta go, we gotta go. We don't have time to shoot him, even though, I mean, I'm not a big uh, gun person. I know about guns, though, and I know it takes you about two seconds to shoot someone, or something. So, we don't have time. We don't have time to shoot him and make sure he's dead. Okay. You have time to at least shoot him, though, right? Just, like, shoot him in the heart. Shoot him in the head. You know? Uh, but they don't. So they make a run for it. Um, and the police enter the building uh, in the next panel. And Sandman wakes up, sees that they're both gone, but also hears the police running up the stairs. It's at this point where we learn that it's actually a multi-story building that they're in. Uh, we just didn't see them go up the stairs because you can only show them, in, you know, like I said with the Hawkman story, you only have so many panels, so you have to be conservative in your panel usage. So we didn't see them go up a bunch of stairs to get to an, uh, another floor, but they are because Sandman jumps out of the window and hangs on to some weird plants that are on the outside of the wall. And he says, I'd hate to drop from here. Uh, and so then he presumably shimmies to another room uh, and, and runs down the stairs, I guess. Uh, he says running through the... So he's suddenly in the main lobby 
uh, the Sandman sees the twin thieves coming out of the elevator, and he punches them both, knocking them both out, and then drags their bodies to the police car and says, will the Bluecoats be pleasantly surprised? Yeah, they will. And he leaves leaves a note that says, you'll find the stolen jewelry at 266 Nolan Drive, signed the Sandman. And then, of course, he leaves a little pinch of sand. And then it says, Sandman appears monthly in Adventure Comics. So that's that's good. That's good if you, you know, if you like the Sandman, which I do. He's Normally his stories are pretty good. That one, not so much because of the, the lack of room to work. You know, like I've said. Like I've really, really sort of, uh, like a dead horse, beaten it uh, too much. So... Uh, So let's move on to the next story, which is going to be the Flash story, uh, written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn, as always, by Everett E. Hibbard. So let's get into it. This Flash story starts with a police officer noticing an open window on an apartment building um, in a semi-residential section of the Great Metropolis. I don't know if that means Metropolis the city. I doubt it. I mean, I think it means Metropolis in the general sense of a Metropolis being a big city. Uh, So he knocks on the door and he says that Widow Jones isn't home. That's funny. She never takes any trips. Uh, So this is a a woman named Widow Jones's house uh, building. And at that moment, Jay Garrick runs by on his morning run in his Flash costume. And he runs up to the police officer and asks him if there's anything that he can do, but he says it in such a way that all the words are together because he's saying it so fast. And uh, he has to he has to repeat himself for the police officer because the police officer can't hear him. Uh, the police officer explains that there's an open window uh, uh, of this widow that lives alone, and he thinks maybe it's a burglary, but he can't get in. Uh, and so the Flash says, I'll go try to find another way in. So he races around and does the classic Flash thing of when he runs by people, you know, the the slipstream sort of pulls hats off of uh, them and, and stuff out of their hands and stuff like that. The classic, classic Flash. So he finds a door on the back uh, that is open. It's just like ajar, which is unsafe. And he checks on the lock, and he can tell that it has been forced. The lock's been forced open. So burglars, no doubt, no doubt that there are burglars. Uh, he runs inside. He sees uh, the table is set with, you know, multiple plates. Um, the burglars clearly were like, oh, I'm just going to have a little food along with this B&E. Uh, so he runs into the upper rooms and finds the widow, Jones, uh, dead in her bed. Uh, it was nice of the murderers to put her in her bed, I guess, or kill her in her bed. Uh, he also sees a wall safe that has been uh, broken into, and it's wide open, and it's empty. So uh, a, a burglar homicide, burglar homicide, uh, burglary homicide uh, situation. So he runs back, and before the the police officer can even walk down one step off of the porch, the flash is back and explains that, uh, all the stuff that he found inside this woman's apartment. So, so the Flash then is like, uh, well, the police officer says, you mean you found all that out before I could take a step? And the Flash says, exactly. Now I want you to tell me how I can become a detective and help solve this crime. Um, Flash, you're already a superhero. Like, you're working outside the law, but you also want to become a police officer? You don't need to be a police officer to solve a crime, technically. 
Um, so he, the police officer tells him, go to Commissioner Gardner, and uh, not Guy Gardner, uh, a different Gardner. Uh, maybe it's his uncle, who knows. Uh, and, and he'll, you know, he'll do something for you, I guess. Uh, so the Flash runs, and he, he causes a car to crash into a lamp pole with his speed, I guess. The driver gets so scared. And he gets to the police station and runs past all the police officers into Police Commissioner Gardner's office. And Gardner is shocked, of course. He's like, how'd you get in? And uh, Flash is like, never mind. Swear me in as a detective. I want to help solve a murder case. And the Gardner is, uh, Police Commissioner Gardner says, no murder case has been reported today, and I wouldn't give it to a civilian. And then, uh, before he can finish that sentence, the Flash runs out. It says, I'll be back in a jiffy. He runs out into the police, or into the police station, out into the hallway, and steals all the clothes off of this police man, policeman, cop, uh, takes all his clothes and puts on his clothes, and runs back into Gardner's office, and the Flash runs in and is like, I'm a cop now, how about that detective job? And Gardner says, no, no, go away, I'm busy. Uh, then the Flash runs around him, uh, making him dizzy. And, said, and Gardner says, stop it, stop it, you're driving me nuts. And Flash is like, do I get the job? And Gardner says, yes, yes, here's the badge, hold still. So uh, the Flash says, I'll bring the murderers back inside half an hour. So that's a, the Flash is acting very weird in this story. Like, why does he want to become a detective? Why does he think he needs to become an official detective? He hasn't needed to be a cop or a detective at all to solve any of the other crimes he stopped. But I guess this one's special. So he runs back to the Widow Jones's house and finds or does some investigating. He, you know, he sees that the burglars ate cold turkey. That's not really a clue. Um, he goes and tests the safe for fingerprints. Doesn't find a single one. So these are professionals. But out of the window, he finds on a nail, a loose nail or like a protruding nail, a piece of a tie. A piece of a plaid tie. So he goes and searches every haberdashery shop in the city, um, and he doesn't. None of them know, you know, where it is or what it is or what kind of tie or that or if they sold anything like it. But one points him towards Carmichael's, which is a department store. Uh, so he goes to their haberdashery department and talks to the woman there, and she says, "Yes, we do sell this plaid tie. Uh, it is called a tartan true." Uh, tie, and she says, uh, well, the Flash asks if anybody has bought one recently, and she's like, are you crazy? Like, we sell thousands of these, and uh, it'll take a week to go through all the records, so uh, now I can't give you that information. It's going to take too long. He says, well, take me, take me to the records, so this woman is dragged by the Flash to the records room, and Flash searches through the records cards, um, and finds uh, the tartan true that the type of um, the type of tie it is, and it's sort of code X two six seven. So he then goes through all of the sales slips to find uh, X two six seven sales, uh, and he eventually finds one uh, to a John Whittles, and John Whittles is apparently Clutch Whittles, who's a well known crook. Uh, well, typically, typically well-known crooks, crooks are in jail, so it seems like maybe he's not very good at his job. But also, what what is what is it about this one that says that this is the guy just because he's a criminal? If he went to jail and served his time, he's no longer a criminal. He is a 
He has been rehabilitated, if, if you believe that the prison system actually works. Uh, so he says, this is, this is the one. This is the one for sure. He's getting somewhere. And the lady's mad because he's made a real mess of the records room. So then he, you know, spins around really fast and uh, cleans it all up. And he says, so long, angel face, and thanks for the help. And she's like, what help? That's an idea. Help me, someone. Help, help. So the Flash runs down to the Bowery, which is apparently where Clutch Whittles lives. Uh, he, he searches uh, dive bars for anyone who knows where Clutch Whittles is. Uh, he's, of course, dressed like a cop, so they say, what's it to you, copper? What's it to you, copper? And he says, that's not the way to answer a civil question. I'm going to teach you a lesson. So he spins him around, um, you know, making him all dizzy. And after he's done spinning, he says, fine, fine, fine. Uh, Clutch lives two blocks down in the Redstone house. Uh, so Flash runs down there and busts in through the door and says, you two are under arrest. And uh, the two are like, a copper, get him. Yeah, plug, get the guy, says Clutch. To his bald-headed uh, associate. Of course, he's bald. Bald men are always villains. I get it. I see you, DC Comics. I see you You hate the follicularly challenged. Uh, so Flash ties up Plug with his own belt. And then grabs the gun right out of uh, Clutch's hands. And, and Clutch is mad because he didn't even give him time to aim. That's not fair. And uh, the Flash puts him over his shoulder and says, Funny, I never thought I'd be acting as a police car, but here I am, carting a criminal off to jail. Flash, you do that all the time. Ugh. Sometimes I'm just like, sometimes I think that the writers of these comics just forget that they wrote com the comics previously, because these are all written by the same people. It's not like they had somebody else doing the job for this specific book. I mean, it's... It's silly. Uh, so he brings Clutch to the commissioner's office and drops him off. And uh, com police commissioner Garden Gardner says, you got him already? You hardly went out the door. Well, he did say he'd bring him back in a half hour. So uh, so Flash runs back to Clutch Whittle's house, grabs Plug and the money, and brings it back to the commissioner's office. And he's, you know, shaking the hands of the commissioner. And the commissioner's like, oh, marvelous work, Flash. Simply marvelous. And uh, the police officer from the beginning busts into the door and says, I want to report a murder the with the Widow Jones. Now, I'm not a cop. But I don't think you report murders to the police commissioner. So I don't think that that's how that would work. And uh, the police commissioner says, report it. The Flash here just brought in the murderers. And the original cop says, gee, and I run all the way to get here first. Gee, you can't beat the Flash. You're just a guy. And that is the end. That is the end of the Flash in All-Star Comics number one. It, of course, has a little sort of advertisement panel for the Flash in Flash Comics, uh, his eponymous title. Uh, so let's move on to the Spectre story, the second to last story in All-Star Comics number one. Uh, written, of course, by Jerry Siegel, and drawn by Bernard Bailey. Uh, this is the one that gets ten pages rather than eight, because it stole two from Our Man. So let's get into that. So this Spectre story starts out uh, at the scene of a fire, uh, arson, likely, in the city of Cliffland. I don't know if that's where Jim Corgan lives all the time, but he's there at this sort of investigation, so I would assume. So let's pencil him in. As living in Cliffland, and uh, he is talking to the owner of the building, Doctor Cragg, 
Um, and Dr. Craig's like, how fortunate that I had my building fully insured, uh, which is suspicious just from the great jump. Don't talk about that. Uh, because Jim Corrigan then says, how unfortunate for the tenants who died, Dr. Craig, that the house had not better fire precautions. So uh, uh, Jim is uh, investigating and finds a piece of cloth that was worn by um, one of the people that died in the fire. And so the specter jumps out of his body and takes the cloth and flies up uh, through the black sp- through black space uh, and he comes to uh, the endless chain of departing souls. He uh, uh, goes above them, stands above them and says, who you who once wore this cloth, I must commune with you. And one of them flies up and says, speak. And the specter asks if the fire was, uh, the apartment fire was accidental and that person says, no, it was deliberately set. Before I died, I glimpsed the fire bug. Now you may be thinking, well, great, the investigation's over. We know who did it. Well, the specter doesn't tell. The specter tells the ghost, thank you for the information. I assure you that the cold-blooded killers responsible for your death will pay for their sins. So uh, instead of going out and finding the guy who he now knows is the person that started the fire, the specter sits in Jim Corrigan's apartment, just kind of waiting, chilling, until nighttime, I guess. And then suddenly he leaps up and says, time to act. And he flies to a uh, warehouse and goes through the roof of it, uh, ghost style, and comes down upon a man, uh, you know, loading uh, the place up with gasoline uh, barrels to to start a fire. And he sees the specter and is like, what? What? And the specter says, sweat on your brow, your hands trembling. Fella, you're scared. I don't think of the specter as saying the word fella. Uh, So that feels weird. Feels off. And so... He, of course, thinks that the specter is a ghost, because he is, and so he runs uh, out of the warehouse into his car and speeds away. Uh, the specter follows him to uh, someone's, someone's house, and uh, he talks to a guy there uh, and asks how the f- warehouse looked up in flames. Uh, and the guy says, Pete, I something's happened. Awful terrible. I still can't believe it. And uh, he explains that he saw a ghost... Uh, pop right out of the out of the ceiling and this guy says you drunken fool expecting me to swallow such a story and punches him in the face and uh, the specter then appears in front of this guy pete uh and says still doubt him uh with his arm crossed and pete is very scared and grabs a gun and attempts to shoot the specter bullets of course pass right through him and pete then says i'm getting out of here but wait i can't move my feet and specter says yeah i did that and he says, now you're going to answer some questions or you're going to be frozen there forever. Uh, and so so he'll talk. He says, he says he'll talk. And the specter asks who hired him to set that fire or hired him and his associate to set that fire. And he says, Nick Brandt, which I take offense at as a person who is named Nick. Uh, the specter says, anything else you can... Oh, actually, sorry, I should say. Pete says Nick Brandt, but he's only a hireling of the man hire whose identity he doesn't know. So it's a chain. So the specter ends the uh, interview or the interrogation, asking if there's anything else uh, that he can tell him. And he says, Nick is going to take care of the fire warden tonight, I guess, to to get the make sure that the investigation can't really do a lot since there's no fire warden. Uh, although there are still fire investigators. So 
uh, at the fire warden fire warden Zane's house at that moment is Nick Brandt. He's wearing an orange suit and a yellow hat, and he looks really dumb. And he says, listen to reason, abandon that fire quiz, which I don't know what that is, uh, and there will be plenty in it for you. So he's going to try and pay him off. And uh, Fire Warden Zane, to his credit, is, is, a, is a moral man. He has ethics, and he says, no, I won't. Now get out of my house. And so there's a typo in here. It says, but instead of leading, leaving, Bates turns and, uh, but it should be Brant. So that's just a typo. Uh, in 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 this uh, Spectre story, and he punches the warden in the face, and then lights the room on fire, and runs out, while saying, "Now fry." So the Spectre uh, flies at that point, flying to the warden's house because of what Pete told him, and he comes in to find uh, Fire Warden Zane, kind of in the middle of this fire, you know, choking on the on the smoke. Uh, so the Spectre turns the fire into ice, stopping it from. Uh, burning the house down, but it'll eventually cause a very uh, a bad water damage to the house when it melts. The specter tells uh, Fire Warden Zane not to not to try to think about it too hard about the fire turning into ice and and me, this strange figure. Uh, he should just be happy that he's escaped with his life. And now I must leave. Uh, there's a matter I've got to take up with Mr. Nick Brandt. So the specter leaves and finds Nick's car driving down the road. And he's like, I'm going to give him a scare of his life. So the Spectre flies down and uh, stands in the middle of the road as the car is coming towards him. Uh, and Nick Brandt in his car says, I don't like the looks of that guy on the road. I think I'll knock him on his ear. So he's like, I don't like that guy who's standing in the road. I think I'll hit him. All right. I get, I get it. I get it. You're a criminal, but that's just dumb. Uh, so, but as the car, you know, starts to drive towards the Spectre, the Spectre grows, uh, one of his classic tricks, and grows to, like, gigantic sizes. And uh, Nick is scared and tries to drive around him, but uh, the Spectre first stops his car from moving by putting his foot in front of it, and then he steps on it as Nick leaps out of the car. And he grabs Nick uh, and, and says, In a hurry, Nick? Uh, suppose you and I talk, eh? And so he's holding Nick in his the palm of his hand, and he tells him that he's going to pay for his misdeeds, and if there's any last words. And Nick says, I'm not telling you a thing. Uh, but the Spectre says, that doesn't matter, I'm going to probe your mind. Uh, so he makes uh, Nick's skull and head vanish, to exposing his brain, and he says that he can read the knowledge of your thoughts, thoughts uh, through the impressions on your brain, which is uh, interesting. Uh, and then I presume, I just assume he kills him. It's not said, but uh, he just, I'm assuming he kills him. Because then the next thing we see is the specter running. And he says, at last, I know who is behind these fiendish depredations. Uh, and he's going, he's he's flying to uh, where the bad guy is. But before that, he is going to go rescue some people out of this tenement fire he, uh, there's a woman and her baby up on the roof of the, the flaming tenement building, uh, and the roof begins to collapse, uh, uh, but the specter jumps in and uses his magic to stop it from collapsing, and then he uses a sort of, I guess I could, I could only describe it as a tractor beam sort of situation, and grabs the woman off of the roof and sets her down on the ground safely, and then he says, I gotta go, it's going to be a showdown. So he flies off to deal with uh, the bad guy. 
So he turns back into Jim Corrigan at this point and is standing outside of the bad guy's house. And there's only one light on it. And it's the light up in the laboratory. And so um, I'm assuming he flies up there. But Jim Corrigan climbs through the window into this room. And the man inside says, what do you mean by intruding like this? What do you want? And Jim Corrigan, sa- Jim Corrigan says, I want you, Dr. Craig, for arson. And, you know, uh, Craig's like, you're mad. And Jim Corrigan's like, you're, don't deny it. You did it to get the insurance money of your uh, depreciating property values on all of your properties. And so uh, the doctor, Dr. Craig, uh, picks up a test tube and throws it at Jim Corrigan. And it's a form of liquid explosive. And so, like, there's a bunch of smoke and presumably Jim Corrigan's death. But I guess Craig is fine, even though he's, like, a few feet away from him. So it's a very, very localized explosion. But once the smoke clears, the specter is there, and he does his uh, his very good trick of having the bad guy look into his eyes and see the faces of those who died because of you. They're waiting for you, Dr. Craig. Join them. And so Dr. Craig uh, dies. And the specter says, one less vermin to peril decency, but there are others who need my attention, and the specter is ready. And uh, then it has a little advertisement for more fun comics. And uh, that's the end of the Spectre story. I am a big fan of the Spectre, as I've said. I think his costume is silly. uh, But I think his powers of being, like, a dead guy who uh, is given sort of a second chance at life uh, in order to... Because he can fight crime. Uh, Not because, I mean, Jim Corrigan wasn't a bad guy when he died. He was actually a good cop. He, you know, had uh, the love of his life, and they were getting engaged, uh, and, and so he wasn't a bad guy, but getting to, you know, stick around and, and fight for justice is, is a cool shtick, and uh, I also like that the Spectre just says, you know what, I am just going to kill people. All these other guys, they're eventually going to be like, mm, let's just send them to jail, I guess, and the Spectre's like, nah, 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 death. And, and as much as I don't like unnecessary death, the Spectre buys in, says, you know what, that's my thing, and that's what I'm going to do. And he does it. And I get, you got to respect a man for that, or a ghost. So let's move on to the final story in All-Star Comics number one, Our Man, written by Ken L. Fitch and drawn by Bernard Bailey. So let's get into it. Uh, this Our Man story starts with Our Man. It looks like him holding a gun, which I don't know if I've ever seen Our Man uh, have a gun before. I could be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't use guns. Uh, But he is at, uh, well, specifically, Rex Tyler is at a CCC camp. Uh, There's a forest fire uh, happening right there that it's it's being threatened by. And a CCC camp is a civilian conservation corps uh, camp. It's a a government work relief program that was started in 1933 uh, to 1941 to aid with uh, the uh, the high unemployment, uh, especially in unmarried men, uh, young men. Uh, during the Depression. So Rex Tyler is at one of these camps that's, you know, employing these these unemployed men. Uh, and he is using uh, some sort of chemicals. And it looks like he is holding some sort of gun that's shooting chemicals, like a, a fire extinguisher that he created or something. So it's weird that the picture before is of our man holding a gun and shooting something. But the, it, the scene actually starts with Rex Tyler shooting uh, some sort of chemical gun at this fire. He then uh, is talking to the leader of this camp, 
Uh, and he's, you know, the this guy is saying, good job, Tyler, you're, you're great. Um, and Tyler's like, of course, uh, I, I'm glad I could help, you know. But it was it was really the chemicals that did trick, you know, because he's a chemist, so he's giving respect where respect is due. Uh, when suddenly an arrow flies in, and uh, Rex Tyler's like, an arrow? Indians! Rex, it's 1940. Uh, it's, I mean, the Native Americans are just as, you know, advanced as we are. So I doubt that they're just randomly running around shooting arrows also because most of them have been uh, forced onto reservation land, and I doubt that's where you're at. Uh, so this man says, oh, nonsense. There's a note tied to it. Rex Tyler, you dumb idiot. Um, I, did, I do forget that Rex Tyler is notoriously uh, a coward, so I guess that makes sense why he would be so shocked by an arrow flying through the window and hitting this desk. But the note attached says, stopping the forest fire won't help. Unless the camp clears out by tomorrow, there will be murder. So, this is what starts the mystery. But I, we're going to come back to this because I don't know if it, it's ever made clear what this note, who this note is from. So, it's from some sort of fanatic, this guy says. The the camp leader. And so, Rex Tyler's like, murder? You Wait, you've been threatened before? And he's like, yes, three of the boys have been wounded. Then the forest fight today, and now this note... And he's like, I wish I wish I could get the hour man to help us. And Rex, I was like, well, I could put an ad in the paper for you, or you could write him a letter. Uh, and you know, he says, well, I don't, I doubt he'll he could find anything in Mill Meadows. And I don't know what that means. What do you mean find anything in Mill Meadows? Is that supposed to be where the fanatic is? Well, then shouldn't you go and do something about it, camp leader? Maybe the police. But it's weird. But that night in Tyler's hotel room, because he's not obviously he's not at his home. He's out in the, the you know countryside. He puts on his Hour Man costume. He takes his Miraclo. Miraclo. I wonder how it's supposed to be said. Because I was just thinking about it. Miraclo. Like, miraculous. Uh, but also miracle. Miraclo. Miraclo. I don't know. I think Miraclo sounds better. It also sounds more, you know, science-y. And like, like it is. Like it is a pharmaceutical. That would have an advertisement where the guy at the end talks really fast about all the side effects. Uh, so he is running to Mill Meadows. Uh, he just says, that looks like Mill Meadows down there. What do you mean? What is that supposed to mean? Yeah, it looks like, hey, that town, that looks like Mill Meadows. Okay. Uh, but he he sees or he hears a scream coming from this uh, house on the countryside, this country house, uh, when an arrow is shot by him, whizzes by his face. And he says, wow, whoever wrote that note wasn't fooling. So clearly wanting to keep our man away from this house. But he dodges the arrow and busts in and sees two men in uh, trying to get out of the house. And he says, get back inside. And he grabs him and he brings him inside. And uh, he asks who screamed. And it was this girl, Peggy, uh, the daughter of the man who owns the house. Uh, and these men were trying to steal the deed to their house. Because if you have the deed, it's like bearer bonds. If you have the deed in, in certain cases, especially back, I, I don't know if it's the case anymore, but you are the owner of it, the property, technically. I think that's how it works. I'm not a real estate lawyer. Um, so uh, Rex Tyler is you know, saying, oh, picking on defenseless people. I guess I'll have to teach you boys a lesson. And he says, but first, how about telling me what you're doing here? Say, you boys didn't shoot this arrow, question mark. And they said, well, we didn't shoot any arrows. We were hired to come here by, and at that moment, our man 
grabs the father and Peggy and rushes them out of the house, leaving the two thugs in there, I guess, and then the house explodes. So the house is blown up. So so much so much good for the deed, you know? Uh, and Peggy says, oh, that must have been an earthquake. And her father's like, an earthquake? Nothing. The house was bombed. Listen, a car is starting. Oh, wait, maybe our man has said that. The The speech bubbles, the lines don't, aren't really well uh, well drawn, easy to see. Uh, so our man rushes uh, towards the sound of the car, and on the road, he finds a wallet. How convenient. And it is the wallet of John Blair Real Estate Investments, whose office is in Millville, which I was would assume is near Mill Meadows, because what should we name our town? Oh, let's name it after the mill, because that's why the town exists, probably. So <laughs> Rex Tyler uh, is like, I wonder if that, that this wallet fell out of that car, which is like, I mean, yeah, probably. But what if somebody like a few days ago just accidentally dropped their wallet out of their car and it's a complete red herring? It has nothing to do with the case. That'd be pretty funny. I think that'd be pretty funny uh, if we weren't so restricted on pages. I think it'd be pretty funny if that happened. So uh, our man goes to uh, Millville. Uh, to the Millville skyscraper, they must only have one, and he goes up to the penthouse, and he says this thing, which is really dumb, he says, this is luck, the door is open, yeah, our man, it's the balcony on a penthouse, you don't often get burglars doing B&E, like, 20 stories up, that doesn't make any sense, so of course it's unlocked, dummy, uh, and then he's gonna look through the safe, he's gonna try and open the safe, he might find some information that will answer a question in his mind, because that's where I keep all of my important information is in my safe, not on my desk or in my desk drawers. Uh, when suddenly the door opens and three men, one of whom is John Blair, um, he says, get him, boys. He's the one who spoiled things at the mill house. So why is everything named mill? Why is that the mill house? There wasn't even a mill next to the house. Okay. Uh, our man is, you know, kind of uh, dealing with all of them. He's taking them on because he's, he's, He's our man. He's got mir he's got Miraclo in his system, but he starts feeling a weakness come over him, and he looks at his little hourglass necklace, and which apparently has a purpose and is not just like his symbol or whatever. Uh, his ha his hour is out, so he gets captured and tied up, and and John Blair's like, okay, our man, suppose you tell us what you want, and uh, uh, one of John Blair's men says, hey boss, uh, one of the other guys is back with with the girl. And uh, John Blair says, tie him up, although he's already tied up in the previous panel, so I don't know why you're saying it again. Uh, we found out about the plans. Tie him up until we found out about the plans from the girl. I don't want any slip-up. So uh, Peggy is brought into the room, and uh, you know she sees our man. She's like, what have you been doing to him? And John Blair says, the same will happen to your father unless you tell me where you hid the deed. And everyone's like, don't do it. And uh, John Blair says, um, I'm afraid she will persuade the lady to talk to his to his um, henchman. And uh, one of his henchmen grabs a, a red hot iron out of the fire and uh, advances towards the girl. And she's like, fine, fine, I'll, I'll tell. It's hid in a tree right near the, the old mill. Because the mill is important. And John Blair leaves with, the, with his men uh, after tying up Peggy and our man. Uh, and he says, I wouldn't try to escape. You were 30 floors. So 30 floors, not even 20. 
above the ground and there's a guard outside this door. So of course, uh, a B&E 30 stories up would actually be quite difficult. So after he leaves, uh, our man unties Peggy and asks her, like, what's Blair's connection with all this? What are, what are these deeds? And uh, Peggy says, the deeds are to our property. The government wants to buy the deeds, but Blair wants us to sell it to him. And our man says, I get it. He wants to hold out for a higher price. Well, first, I'll take another Miraclo pill. And then one of the boys uh, comes into the door and is like, hey, what's going on? And our man punches him in the face. And then he leaves uh, to go uh, protect Peggy's father. Um, and he gets to their property and he finds John Blair uh, has dug up the box or has got the box out of the tree and ha is getting the the will, the will, the deed. And uh, then, <laughs> uh you know the boys the boys go after our man and our man grabs one by the feet and starts using him as a weapon to hit uh one of the other boys and then he punches john blair in the face and then uh peggy peggy shows up with the police and our man says everything is all right the deed to your property is still here and the police can take care of blair and his friends and then our man rushes off before his miraclo miraclo uh wears off again and, uh, and that is the end of this uh, Our Man story. Now, I'm not mistaken, I don't think, when uh, uh, thinking that we didn't learn who was firing the arrows. I'm assuming we're supposed to think it was John Blair or one of his henchmen firing the arrows. But what did it have to do with the CCC camp? The CCC camp is already owned, I'm pretty sure, by the government. So I don't get it. I don't get why that was part of the story, but uh, I mean, you know, only six pages. I, so I got you got to have a bunch of filler panels, I guess. I don't know, but that is uh, that is the end of uh, Our Man, and that is the end of All Star Comics number one. Uh, I think it's I mean it's a it's it's great to get them all you know in one package, and I bet buying that if you were a big fan of superheroes at the time was pretty cool because instead of getting, you know. Uh, like in the next one, more fun comics number 57, you've got the Spectre and you've got Dr. Fate, but I mean, you don't have Sandman. You have to buy a whole nother book for the Sandman and, um, his other, the other guy, our man and like, you know, Superman, all those guys. So I think it's pretty cool that, uh, this book has come about, uh, and I, and, uh, it'll be, it'll be seasonal for three more. I think, uh, I think after number three, it becomes bi-monthly which means every two months. Um, but until then, it's just a quarterly thing. So that's, it's probably pretty exciting when you saw that on the, on the rack. It's like, yes, five superheroes in one book. Awesome. But uh, let's move on to our final issue this time. Only two issues, because otherwise it would be super long episode because of how jam-packed All-Star Comics number one is. Uh, and we'll move on to More Fun Comics number 57 released May 30th, 1940, with a cover date of July 1940. Uh, no debuts in this one either, but we've got the Spectre, and we've got Dr. Fate, uh, two, two, of, two of the greats, two of the greats. Uh, so let's get into that. The Spectre, of course, uh, written and uh, drawn by Jerry Siegel and Bernard Bailey, respectively. Obviously, we just had a Spectre story earlier in this episode. Same same duo on, on the job. So this uh, story of the Spectre, 
uh, starts off with a scientist, uh, Professor Dale Ericks. Uh, so he his all of his instruments in his laboratory are going haywire uh, when uh, suddenly a voice from out of a speaker in his in, from his equipment or something uh, comes out and says, "Listen to me, Professor. I am speaking to you from the depths of infinity. Do as I say, and you shall receive the ultimate reward." And uh, so the professor does that. And he builds a, a weird machine that the voices instructed him to build. And he's, he's just, he's like, wow, what's, what's the purpose of this machine? Well, no worries. I'll, I'll find out when I get my reward. Uh, upon completing the machine, the professor is uh, whisked up through, through dimensional space into a uh, very dark dimension uh, where a dark castle... That will look familiar to me because I'm seeing it with my eyes. But it might sound familiar to you with your ears. As he walks inside and in a room is a goateed man with a ray shining on him. A ray beam being shot at his person. And the professor is told that, yes, I am the voice. I'm speaking with you through my thoughts, through your thoughts. Uh, through mental telepathy. Now turn off the switch of this ray that is imprisoning me. And after turning off the ray, Zor, the specter's, I guess, only nemesis at this point, uh, is free once again. And the professor says, now that I freed you, you may, uh, now that I freed you, may I have the reward you promised me? Remember the ult to, uh... As Zor turns the ray onto him, freezing him in place for all eternity. Now, does that mean that the professor will live for eternity? Or he's just frozen there for eternity? Because the reason that Zor was likely frozen for eternity is because he cannot die. He is immortal. Uh, so, Zor says, Every second, every hour that I was imprisoned... But one thought pounded at my throbbing consciousness. Revenge upon Jim Corrigan, alias the Spectre. And now I am ready to act. So, Zor travels down through the dimensions of space towards Earth. And he comes outside of the uh, Sergeant Dexter's, uh, another police officer in the police department with Jim Corrigan, uh, outside of his home. And he mentions that it is my luck and your misfortune, Sergeant Dexter, that you and Corrigan often quarrel. And uh, Dexter looks and looks out his window and sees Zor's face. And Zor stares directly into his eyes using the same trick that the Spectre often uses and kills Sergeant Dexter. Then Zor uh, makes a telephone call on Dexter's phone to uh, Wayne, another sergeant in the police department. Uh, he's worked with Jim on previous cases. And he says, Wayne, this is Dexter. Come to my house at once. It's important. Uh, so Wayne does, he gets in his car and he's like, he mentions as he's driving, he says, well, that's weird. I wonder why Dexter would want to talk to me. We're not really like friends or anything. Uh, and once the door opens and Zor is standing there, he hypnotizes uh, Sergeant Wayne and implants the memory of him watching Jim Corrigan shoot uh, uh, Sergeant Dexter dead. So Wayne then gets on the phone and calls police headquarters and gets a squad down to Sergeant Dexter's house because uh, there's been a murder. And he's telling his superior officer or the police officer that comes to be on duty that, um, 
Oh, wait, sorry. Oh, okay, I didn't see these parentheses before. I thought he told this person this, but... So, the police officer asks, and you've no suspicion who committed the crime? And uh, Wayne says, none at all. And then in parentheses, he says, I can't believe that Jim could do such a thing. I've got to confront and get the truth out of him myself. So he rushes over to Jim's apartment and, you know, they, they, they you know, greet each other. And then uh, Wayne takes off his hat and turns around and says, why did you murder Sergeant Dexter? And Jim's like, well, you, this is a joke, right? That's, that's, it's not really funny at all. And Wayne's like, I can't believe you be so brazen about this. I saw you kill Dexter with my own eyes. You're under arrest, Jim. But as he's about to, you know, arrest him, put the cuffs on him, Jim disappears completely. Uh, which we've never seen him do this. We've never seen him use his powers in front of someone as Jim Corrigan rather than as the Spectre. So Wayne sees him disappear. And then the Spectre is uh, floating above invisibly. And then... Uh, he goes into another room, and he's thinking aloud. He says, I wonder where Wayne got the idea that I killed Dexter. And then suddenly, someone says, perhaps I could answer that. And then Zor is standing in the room as well. And Jim's like, or the Spectre uh, says, ah, yes, of course, you're behind this attempt to pin murder on me. Or uh, my, my murder on my identity of Jim Corrigan. And Zor says, of course. And before I'm finished with you, Spectre, you'll regret ever having had the temerity to match wits with me. And so they have a battle similar to the battle they had when they first met uh, up in up in the, you know, uh, dimensional space, uh, throwing comets at each other, you know, uh, using their magical powers. They're equally matched magical powers, but Zor's been added a lot longer like he was last time. And so his knowledge of how to use his powers is better. And so the Spectre is uh, defeated. And Zor, you know, takes off, and the Spectre says, there's no limit to the foul vanilla villainy Zor is capable of perpetrating. I've got to overcome him some way, or the world is faced with disaster. We then cut to San Pueblo Prison, where Pedro Gonzalez is uh, being hanged uh, for his crimes of multiple murders. Uh, as the switch is thrown and the floor falls out from under him to begin the hanging, uh, instead of falling to his death, he is brought back up, the the rope comes off of his neck, and he flies through the roof. Um, I'm assuming he phases through. I don't think he... But it kind of looks like he makes a big hole. So, like, his head just, like, slams through the roof, uh, and, and he flies off. Not of his own powers, because Zor has brought him to him. And he says to Pedro, um, whether you continue to live depends on you, how uh, depends on how faithfully you perform my orders one slip and you'll wish a million times that i had permitted you to die a comparatively peaceful death uh so pedro says that he'll do whatever he wants and zora gives him his duty and he is to kill clarice winston jim corrigan's former fiance and love of his life so clarice is thinking about jim at that moment she's like i wonder if jim's all right he hasn't called in. I haven't heard from him in, him in days. I wish he would call. Uh, Pedro is outside of her window at this point and chloroforms her and carries her body away from her house. Uh, so the specter, always keeping tabs on Clarice, uh, senses that she is in danger and flies off. Uh, finding her being tied to a log on the banks of a, a river with a large waterfall. The specter rushes forward but is kept at bay by an invisible wall. 
uh, Zor appears and tells him, you're unable to pass because I mentally will it, my dear Spectre. Now you will have to stand by and watch your beloved go to her death. So Pedro puts the log in the river and it begins flowing downstream towards the large waterfall. The Spectre flies up through dimensional space to heaven. Let's not beat around the bush. He flies up to heaven. And uh, uh, the presence asks, what is it, Jim Corrigan? Kind of like uh, Zoltar. Zordon. Zordon in Power Rangers. Uh, Jim Corrigan says, Zor is about to take the life of an innocent girl. Can you help me save her? And the present says, we can do nothing but suggest that all evil has an instinctive aversion to Ectobane. Ectobane, if we look at the roots there, Ecto uh, is typically meaning ghosts. And Bane means the uh, dislike of it. So just like wolf's bane uh, is 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 uh, harmful to werewolves. Uh, so there's a tree in the country of Lugania, which is fake, uh, that that grows ectobane uh, trees that the specter can use against basically, I guess, all evil. So if you're even a little bit evil, ectobane is bad for you. So the specter rips these trees out of the ground and creates a cac. I almost said a cactus, a casket. Uh, out of Ectobane, and he brings it back to Zor, and as soon as Zor sees it, he freezes in place. Because even the mere presence of Ectobane overpowers him. Uh, at this point, Clarice has reached the peak of the waterfall, and she's about to fall over, but the specter f- smiles mockingly, and uses his powers to reverse the flow of the waterfall and uh, Clarice, and bring her back to safety. Uh, while he's not looking, Pedro rushes at him, uh, I think with a knife? Yeah, knife in hand. And the specter turns him into a tree, and so the tree looks like someone running with its hands up. Uh, then the specter puts Zor into the Ectobane casket and sends him drifting through uh, space, dimensional space, uh, for eternity. Uh, the specter returns Clarice to her house where she thinks it was all a dream and the specter erases the memory of uh, sergeant wayne so he doesn't remember the implanted memory that zor put into his mind and then uh jim corrigan says but there's one thing i can never forget wait i don't that doesn't really make why is it oh he okay so sorry he's referencing wayne forgetting there's one thing that jim can never forget his mission to remain earthbound until all evil has been stamped off this earth. Then he can finally rest in peace in death. Uh, so that is the Spectre story uh, for uh, More Fun Comics number 57. I, 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 always like, I always like Spectre stories. I think they're, they're pretty good in my mind. So uh, let's move on to Dr. Fate. Uh, a relative newcomer, probably not, no longer the freshman. That would be Green Lantern. But Doctor Fate is our second most recent addition to the Cavalcade, uh, and this Doctor Fate uh, story was written by Gardner F. Fox, the OG, uh, and drawn by Howard Sherman. So let's get into it. So it starts off this Doctor Fate story uh, with a bunch of mysterious deaths by burning, but there's no fire like there's no evidence of fire around now you may be thinking were the bodies moved no they weren't they just died where they're at but 
they burn to death, which is mysterious. Uh, so Dr. Fate has heard about these uh, burning deaths, and so he is sort of, you know, watching the investigators, and then he flies off to find Inza, his compatriot, uh, his, his love? I don't know if they're in love at this point, but his compatriot at least, his, his sidekick. And Inza, of course, is very happy to see him. She loves him a lot, or, or you know, is I mean, they, but she rushes towards him, I think, to embrace. But uh, she tells him about these burning deaths. It's all wealthy men who received letters uh, asking for money right before they died. They uh, apparently they refused. I don't know how you know if someone refused or not. Uh, but Inza does know that. She knows everything. She's so smart. Uh, when suddenly, uh, as Doctor Fate says, Malayan poison bats fly in through the window uh fate burns them with his energy from inside of his body uh which is what his powers are at this point his powers is not the helmet of naboo at this point uh inza from the shock uh, of these bats kind of passes out a little bit and uh fate kind of brings her back to consciousness when the 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 fire begins outside of Inza's apartment, outside of her glass doors, and uh, a a seems like a sentient ball of fire busts through, and uh, Doctor Fate calls it the lambent flame. So it's it's something he knows about. He grabs it and throws it off into the sky and says, "Return to your master." And then he and Inza fly off and follow it to its master to where his its master resides and it is to a a creepy castle on a oceanside mountain uh which is i guess where all of dr fate's villains live because uh wotan also lived in a mountain fortress so uh gotta love the mountains they're the the most magical part of earth so the flame flies in to this uh castle but then three or four or numerous other of these flame balls fly out of the the castle and Dr. Fate uses his magic to turn encase them all in ice uh, to stop their terrible abilities. You would think, well, now wouldn't they just melt the ice because they're made of fire? No, it's magical ice. So, you know, what did I say about asking questions? Don't. Don't you do it. You just gotta, you gotta live in the fiction. Uh, Dr. Fate uses his magic to bust down the giant door with a comically large lock. It is a comically large lock. It's so funny how big it is. Uh, I'll probably post that picture for, uh, primo panels. Actually, you know what? I'm going to clip it right now. I'm going to just take a little, take a little screenshot of that right now. Perfect. We've got it. Uh, and the door crumbles and Inza and Dr. Fate rush inside, uh, where they had, are attacked by what Dr. Fate calls the Legion of the Sticks. So I would assume that they are dead people because the River Styx is the river that takes you to the land of the dead in Greek mythology. Uh, they separate Dr. Fate from Inza and his powers aren't working on these, uh, these what he says, unreal shapes. So his magic doesn't work on them, so he has to fight them hand to hand. But they get, in, they get Inza and they take her to a different location in the castle and uh dr fate rushes off to try to rescue her um inside this secret room uh inza meets the villain of our story and he has a funny name his name is mango the mighty 
I don't know if mangoes were just really, really exotic or they sound like it sounds like a foreign word, but his name is Mango the Mighty. And guess what? Guess what? Guess what his hair is? It's nothing. He's bald. He's an evil bald guy. Wow. Wow, DC. Again? Again? You come at me in my house again with this? Bald people aren't evil. Except for Lex Luthor. But that's DC. They hate bald people. Uh, so she, uh, Mango the Mighty ties up Inza and says, I leave you to suffer untold agonies. I only wish it were Dr. Fate who was there. So he leaves one of his lambent flames in the room with Inza to presumably burn her to death. Meanwhile, Dr. Fate is trying to find Inza in the secret room that she is in. And so he you know, uses his magic to sort of sense through the walls and uh, discovers that there's a room below him. Uh, that he that is not supposed to be there. He uses uh, magic, a magic spell, to bust through the floor into the room, battles the uh, lambent flame in there with his powerful cloak, uh, sort of smothering it, and, uh, and and releasing Inza. And then he and Inza uh, chase off to find Mango the Mighty again. They find him in another part of the castle, and he says, too late, Dr. Fate. I am prepared to go hence to other worlds. So he is about to uh, do a magic spell to transport him to another world uh, out of Dr. Fate's clutches. But uh, Dr. Fate uses magic to uh, try to uh, try to combat him, but uh, he is stopped. And then Dr. Fate uses what I call street magic, which is a punch in the face, to deal with Mango the Mighty. He knocks him out. Inza asks if he will kill him, because earlier he said that he needs to be killed. Uh, but instead, he does kill him, kind of. He arranges his body and turns it into a tiny stone statue and asks Inza to seal it in a cabinet of ebony. Uh, then the burning deaths will never harm another person. And then after leaving the castle, Dr. Fate uses magic to blow it up. Um, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, and that is the end of the story. Uh, a six-page, a little short six-page Dr. Fate story. Classic. Uh, and that's also going to do it for More Fun Comics, number 57, and this episode of the podcast. You know what? I made a big push last week with the New Year's New Year's resolution for you to rate and review. Um, I'm not going to ask you this, that this time. Uh, I'm going to give you a break because, uh, you know, you don't need me harping at you all the time. You'll do it if you, you want to do it. You know, if it moves you, if the podcast moves you, you'll do it. Um, and if not, you won't. I'm the same way. I'm a bad. I'm a bad podcast listener. I'll. I'll be honest. Uh, but uh, as always, the socials are in the show notes. Most active on Instagram, where I'm posting covers and primo panels, all that kind of good stuff. And uh, until next time, I'll see you on Friday for uh, issue by issue crisis. Uh, I'm your host, Nick Byers. See you around. <laughs>